Welcome to the Mark Podcast Series, a joint production of the Health Federation of Philadelphia and Prevention Institute. Mark stands for Mobilizing Action for Resilient Communities. Across the United States, communities are coming together to understand the impact that traumatic events in childhood can have on adulthood and to create environments where children are free from harm. During this podcast series, we'll talk with leaders from cross-sector networks and communities that are moving this approach forward on a broad scale. I'm your host, Ruben Cantu of the National Nonprofit Prevention Institute. And my plan for this podcast series is to inspire and support collaborative community resilience efforts by problem solving with our guests about the topics that challenge them and their networks every day. And I'm Katherine Evans, the president of Rooted Strategy. My plan for these podcasts is to raise the issue of power dynamics. Power is such an important factor to consider when cross-sector networks bring together community residents with people who work in fields like education, healthcare, and city government. Today, we're joined by Joel Fine and Crystal Wyatt, who are both members of the Philadelphia ACE Task Force Steering Committee. They're with us today to talk about their experiences and what effective network leadership looks like. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Joel is a pediatric emergency physician at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, where he co-directs the Center for Violence Prevention. He was one of three physicians who founded and co-chaired the Philadelphia ACE Task Force. Crystal is a community activist and entrepreneur and podcaster whose work focuses on health disparities related to conditions like diabetes, trauma, violence, and incarceration. So we'll go ahead and just start the conversation then. You are both deeply involved in the Philadelphia ACE Task Force, a cross-sector community-based network. Crystal, what's powerful about organizing models of community collaboration around the science of ACEs, trauma, and resilience? Well, I believe what's most powerful is having organizations come together, but also having a community person involved in that entire process. So my background is primarily focused in community-based participatory research. And so I love the idea that um, these organizations like hospitals or I'm only saying hospitals because I'm looking directly at Joel, but um, these organizations, they are coming together to try to solve the problems that are permeating our communities. And I think the best way to do that is to have those sectors, but definitely have a community person um, at the table because you, you can't solve community issues without having community at the table. Joel, anything to add about this question about the power of these organizing models of community collaboration? I think that the most powerful aspect of the science of ACEs trauma and resilience in how it inspires communities is that it resonates with all the sectors that Crystal was mentioning. And because trauma affects all levels of socioeconomic status and other demographics, and really for many people explains like what for some was like previously unexplainable. And that's why it resonates. The knowledge that we all were coming to this work with more to do than anyone could do on their own and the hope that through collaboration we could really do something bigger and better was why uh, I think that the science inspired the collaboration. 
Based on your involvement and kind of the work that you all have been doing, what kind of changes are you feeling that these kinds of networks can make? For me, so I'll talk about my experience on uh, the Philadelphia ACE Task Force. One of the things that I'm most excited about when I joined was the idea of getting the message of ACE out to the community. I was privileged to, to work in this academic setting where we were talking about ACEs, but in my community, in my neighborhood, or in my peer groups, we weren't talking about it. And so working with the Philadelphia ACE Task Force and working on the campaign for messaging, we were able to walk away, or I was able to walk away with tangible like postcards with ACE messages on them so that I can then give them out to folks that I know. And even in community settings, clinics, all these different places where you don't think that ACEs is being talked about, where it's not being talked about. And so we were able to give that information out and make sure that it's in settings that it wouldn't normally be in. So that's what I think is um, what we've been able to do. Joel, anything to add there? What kind of changes do you feel that these networks can actually make once they're in place? The, the first change that a network would make is to bring disciplines together, right? And then see trauma through different lenses uh, and then share resources and perspectives. So that, that was eye-opening for many of us. Uh, and as Crystal points out, there are so many stakeholders in this work and in the issue itself that we need to be able to understand it through everybody's perspective. Once that starts and really generates energy, um, the next stage is to really invite each other into each other's homes and collaborate through the network in order to get the important work done. But the first stage has to happen before the next one takes hold. Crystal, I wanna talk a little bit about network leadership. What do you think the role is of the leader in helping networks make change happen? I think bringing your authentic self, right? And so one of the things that I, I pride myself on is showing up as Crystal. And so I come to a meeting representing the community. That's my job. I am of the community. I have an ACE score. One of the things that was most interesting to me was finding out my own ACE score. And so when I realized that I had an ACE score that I shouldn't have even probably been alive, but not only am I alive, I'm resilient. I'm sitting at tables where I can inform change. And so the leaders have to be authentic. They have to have some experience in it. Um, they have to have lived experience, right? And so if you don't have that, then you're not gonna, you shouldn't be at the table. You can't lead, you can't inform networks, you can't you can't do any of the work that you think should be done. And so one of the things that I do most like about this team is that we all come from perspectives where we have um, experienced it, whether it's vicarious or acute, it's, we've experienced it and now we're willing to be honest about it and bring some healing to the collective. Joel, from your perspective, what skills or capacities make network leaders effective? The skill of listening is probably the most important and it sounds trite and it sounds pretty easy to say that, but to watch um, how the room fills up, right? And who it's filling up with and learn what their talents are by listening and learning what their reason for being there. As Crystal was mentioning, their reason can be multifold. Oftentimes it's their own life experiences or 
having the experiences of others as well. Once that's there, then it's really a matter of visioning where the needs and goals are, where the overlap is, and where connections need to be made, and then provide in some way with the help of other people who have this experience, the scaffolding or the structure to allow everybody to kind of bring what their talent is to the table and make it work in a positive direction. Because it can also go, go south and everybody has different agendas and uh, nothing can happen. So I think it's, it's that process of seeing how the room fills up, learning where the talent is, seeing where the overlap is and making the connections that I think the leader has to do. And Crystal, how is your participation and leadership in the Philadelphia ACE Task Force helped you cultivate and hone those, those skills and capacities? It's been a robust experience. For me, the work that I was doing when I joined the Philadelphia ACE Task Force was working with women who support incarcerated loved ones. And so I knew I wanted to do more work with these women because I was on the, on the road with them, traveling up to state prisons, listening to their stories of trauma. Being on um, the Philadelphia ACE Task Force, I started to learn more about the language of trauma and how to put my own program together. So then I was able to create a program. So I wrote a grant where I could support women who support incarcerated loved ones. So what it did was it gave me leverage. It allowed me to realize that I knew what I was talking about, but I was also connected with a resource And so this is a collective, it's a collaboration. There are people across the city who was a part of this thing when it it first started. So there was this network that you could really tap into to get support for your own population. And so for me, I was able to build really good, strong relationships and it helped me deliver an intervention for women who support incarcerated loved ones without fear, without the fear that I didn't know what I was doing. Right. I already had research skills, but to be able to have a whole network behind you saying, Crystal, you're on to something, you're doing this right. That to me was, um, I don't know, it was notching my belt to make me realize, hey, being a part of a network, it works. Not to be using the same word, but yes, it works. (laughs) Can't spell network without work. Right. This is Catherine, and I want to make an observation about some of the things that Joel and Crystal are talking about with regards to the duality of the network that they're a part of with this institutional partner bringing its resources and this grassroots community-based leadership bringing its resources to the table. And it's so awesome and refreshing to hear what you have been able to accomplish with that duality. What I'm curious about is how power works in that dynamic. And more specifically, when I think about power in terms of organized people, organized resources, and organized ideas, I'm wondering how power and influence dynamics shape decision-making and process in your network. And when are the, the resources, people, and ideas of your institutional partners and the resources, people, and ideas in your grassroots leadership at odds with one another? And how do you resolve any tension that may arise there? When this ACES task force started, Crystal and I had just been 
working together for five or six years in a CDC funded center that was a community based participatory research center of excellence for violence. And I learned a ton during that time period, but we started out sharing the power in the center itself by having our community members who represented various parts of Philadelphia, West and Southwest in particular, as leaders and what we call core, core leaders in our center, uh, where we actually provided funding for people from the community to the same extent that the academics were being funded and the ideas were being shared. And we made a number of missteps during that time period, but we also stayed at the table and learned from each other, and most importantly, learned to stay at the table, and were very successful over that time period. So I, I feel blessed and fortunate to have had that experience prior to entering into this world of the ACES task force, and I think I brought some of that knowledge, and I'm, I'm gonna let Crystal explain how she may have brought that knowledge to it. Uh, but it is so important to recognize the power differential because still the academic center was getting the funding for that initial violence prevention center and we were distributing the funding and so there is still a power dynamic that is there mm -hmm. um, and we have to recognize it and, and, and uh, deal with it really over over that time i think for me catherine i am i am powerful period right and so even when I worked under, and I'll just say under because there was there's hierarchy in, in a program, right? So when I worked under Joel, I think for me, I had worked in research for, I don't know, 15 years before then, and it was so oppressive. It was, it did not have a model of community-based participatory research. So when I met with Joel's partner at the time, Dr. Steve left and met with him in his office and he was explaining what this project, this violence prevention project was, was about. I wanted to then lend my power to it because I believed in it, right? And so I never worked in a space where there was, that I had a boss because I'm a community person, right? You can't conduct research in communities without community folks at the table. So I always knew that that was my power. And because I was fortunate to work with a team who understood that and recognized it, I was able to grow with them. So going from the Violence Prevention Project, and now we're on this task force where I've been invited to be a steering committee member, I think that's the natural, that's the natural trajectory of any community person who believes in their own power. And that's just who I am. So when we're at the table and we're having conversations about how we're going to go into the community, how we're going to do our messaging, they listen to me because I know what I'm talking about. So that's how it works <laughs> for us. And I would hope that it, so I'm excited about this podcast because I would hope that this message gets out because there are teams that are in America right now or across the country who don't understand that. They don't understand that you need to have the community and they have to have a, a voice. They have to be an equal stakeholder in any initiative that has the word community involved. I hope I answered your question because I can go on a roll. <laughs> that was a great answer. And I think that is something that's going to be, I think that's something that's going to resonate with a lot of people. Um, you're going to have a lot of, uh, as people are listening to this, I think there's going to be a lot of finger snaps and head nods and people are going to be agreeing with you all, all around. Um, that's great. 
Joel, how can a leader support a network during times of crisis, such as we're facing right now with the COVID pandemic and also kind of the, the greater attention that's being focused on violence against Black, Indigenous, and people of color? My short answer to how you support during both COVID and racism is to create space and time for people to uh, express themselves and learn from each other. And that is very difficult to do when we're all battling two things at once. In the medical world, COVID has really created a crisis of you know, the soldiers that are trying to fight it. And in a way, I think that contributing to discussions around racism and anti-racism has actually provided a relief valve for many of our soldiers in the medical world to consider themselves working towards a positive end is something that they have been seeing as a problem for a long time. And so I think in a way, it's actually giving people the freedom to deal with one, to help them in a way escape the other. Crystal, yeah, the same question. How can a leader support networks during these times of crisis? I couldn't agree with Joel more. You have to listen. And so you have to open up that space where people can feel all of this. And I think for me, it's COVID, it's racism. And if you're in Philadelphia, and Joel, you can attest to this, it's gun violence. And so we are dealing with a three-headed monster in our own backyard. As a leader, you have to recognize that it's all happening. It's all happening. And so you have to listen, you have to be patient, and you have to give yourself space to, to feel it. It hurts. I love what you're saying um, about the remedy, the antidote for the pain of these, these dual pandemics being space and time. And so much agree with that. Um, what I'm thinking about is the limitations of funding, grant cycles, philanthropic expectations. I often in my work with philanthropies challenge them to fund space and time for healing and for growth and relationship building. And I'm encouraged to see more philanthropy moving in that direction. But I'm curious about how you negotiate that from a power perspective with your funders. And when you are needing more space and time for those um, relationships and that trust and that sense of network identity and healing to occur, how do you negotiate that with your funders? I think that's something that listeners will really benefit from hearing from you. We have been very fortunate that many of our funders, including corporate foundations and even the NIH, have been very understanding about how these kind of duodemics have influenced the work. And we've had none of them say to us, well, we still expect you to do X, Y, and Z because that's what you said in your grant. And I think uh, because these philanthropies or these foundations are, and even federal agencies are run by people who are also experiencing the same thing. And they have sympathy or empathy, depending on how strong the feeling is for those of us who are trying our best to do the work. I agree with that. And Catherine, what I think about 
COVID and uh, racism, this the civil unrest that has occurred, is that it's leveled the playing field. None of us are, are exempt. We feel it everywhere we go. We feel it in our home, our neighborhood, our workplace, our government, social media. So if you don't have some compassion or empathy, then you're looked at a little crazy at this point, right? People are like, you expect me to function at optimal capacity when the world is imploding? How, 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 how? And so I'm on a separate project where we are, this is different from, you know, ACE task force, but it's still, I talk about the trauma in it. We're working, I work with as in asthma research right now, and we are constantly having conversations about COVID because the population that we are working with are at highest risk, you know? And so I know you can't expect us to go in and ask people to give of their time when they don't know how they're going to pay their bills or eat, or if their family member has COVID and how can they quarantine when they live in a two room house. So you have to be compassionate. You have to be extremely understanding. I think that's what's happening with our funders. They are really seeing that we have to really like let people be right now and we'll, we'll figure it out in 2021. Let's just rest. I totally agree there. Switching over to another topic, Crystal, the Philadelphia ACE Task Force has quite a bit of experience with strategic planning processes. Mm -hmm. What advice do you have for leaders as they guide their networks through planning and the change processes that are a part of that? Well, I think what you need to do is, is be realistic. As we all know, our strategic plans have changed. No one would have thought we would be doing a Zoom podcast right now because life has changed. That strategic plan that you had, you have to allow for the wiggle room. You have to allow for folks to come in and bring their authentic self and explain, you know, and talk about how it can be done. So for instance, and, and I'll use this podcast as an example, I have a podcast as well. My podcast, folks would come to my house and we would do the podcast face-to-face. -face. I can't do that anymore. So you have to change. You have to change with the times. And so I think when you're doing a strategic planning any strategic plan or in the, in the process, you have to look at what's happened around you and adapt to this. I am a proponent of this virtual space. I think moving forward with uh, the Philadelphia ACE Task Force, we're gonna be able to do so much more work because now people are open to this virtual environment that we're in. I think before you think about your strategic plan, you have to be realistic about what you can and cannot do. Joel? I couldn't agree more about the realistic and real expectations for strategic planning, but I think strategic planning can also be visionary, which it, it has as part of it. Um, so for example, if you're creating a logic model that makes sense, you're making sure it's not overly ambitious, but has at least a, you know, some items that are doable in the near future so that you feel like you're actually attaining them and others that are more visionary that I think are places where you strive to get to that goal. And I, if you don't have a strategic plan with both of those in it, um, I think that's a, a difficult situation to be in. From a very nuts and bolts perspective, one of the things that some may not want to hear this, but I think what really helped us in our strategic planning is to have non-volunteers assist with the organization, people that were actually paid staff. 
who could put things together for us and send out emails and get us all together to kind of visionary the, the strategic plan. And also an experienced strategic planning consultant was really helpful when we, when we built the plan. I think it was 2017 we started doing that work again for the task force or reimagining it. And those were in, invaluable. And those people were invaluable because we're all working our full-time jobs and trying to make something wonderful happen at the same time through the task force. So I think there's a, there's a kind of ingredients that, ha that helped a lot that many, some smaller organizations or smaller networks may not have, uh, but we were, we were fortunate enough to go through that with them. And, and I think there's a lesson there also in terms of, you know, whether it's bringing in an external person or making sure that there's one single point person who's going to be helping lead you through the process so that everybody else and all the members can actually devote their, devote their brain space to actually thinking about the strategic direction or the strategic vision and not have to be thinking about, oh, we need to set up this meeting or that meeting and send out these emails and make sure we've got all these notes compiled. Um, you can actually think about and focus on this, on the strategy. Before we wrap things up, is there anything else you'd like to add about networks or network leadership with, with our listeners, um, Crystal? I would just say, just be open, you know, be open to how it flows. Make sure, and I can't emphasize this enough, that you have community people in leadership roles. And also, think about compensation for community folks. They, they have a different level of involvement and they have their own grassroots organizations that they're running. Funding is not the same for them as it is for other members of these networks. And so thinking about that, thinking about the time, thinking about the value that they add and compensating them for it. Do not be afraid, do not be shy, you are powerful, get in a leadership role and lead, lend your voice to the movement. It's valued. Community members are the subject matter experts. Joel, before we wrap up, anything else you'd like to add about networks or network leadership? I love what Crystal said about um, be rolling with it. Um, I think that's one of the most important aspects. Um, you know, the, as networks mature, goals change, players change, there's unanticipated opportunities and um, barriers, and it's really helpful to have that overall kind of vision and mission to say, okay, well, things have changed, but how do we move it now towards adapting to the change yet keeping that mission under our belt? Thinking about, you know, at some point, there were fewer resources for our network. Uh, and then there was also, in addition to kind of losing those resources that we initially had, there was a wave of trauma-informed care that was expanding in our city. Uh, and it happened parallel to what we were doing, not just because of what we were doing. We cannot take all the credit for that, right? It was a wave in the country, really. Um, so it kind of provided our members with more opportunities to be deeply involved in translating their expertise to other settings. And they didn't necessarily need this large room of people to show the power of numbers that this was an important idea, right? At that point, it, it, we noticed it became more valuable to kind of create these learning communities or communities of practice that would focus the conversations and still allow the sharing of ideas, but that big room wasn't necessary anymore, but the mission stayed the same. So I think being able to understand how the culture is changing and how the environment's changing and adapt with it at the same time 
making sure that you stay on, on mission is, is really an important aspect of, of that leadership. Catherine, is there anything else that's coming up for you as you've been listening into the conversation? I think that the Philadelphia ACES Task Force has done it the way that it should be done in order for these efforts to be resilient and sustainable. And I commend you. I think it's so critical. I mean, I'm, I'm just grateful that we have your two voices, Crystal and Joel, on this conversation because I think you represent so well the importance and the weight of all the resources that come to the table to build and cultivate and grow networks. This recognition that, as Ruben said, community members are subject matter experts and that in and of itself is of such incredible value. And so the other parts of the network, the funder, the backbone organization, the other partners that are in collaboration, all need to recognize that community members are bringing something critical to the table that without that element, the initiative itself would not be successful. And I think the more that we can emphasize the power of lived experience in shifting systems, to be more equitable and more resilient, the more successful we will be overall. So excellent job modeling that, Crystal and Joel, and I hope that those who are listening really take it to heart. May I just re-reflect on that a little bit, which I think the, you know, the community often, with violence prevention, often it's people who are living in our local area who are suffering, as, as Crystal mentioned, from gunshots happening every day in their in their world. But the community for ACEs is really much more broad. And the people who are in academics and in the hospitals and in positions of social services administration are also the community because they also come to the table with their own ex life experiences and likely their own ACEs. It's interesting to think about making sure that we define community appropriately and not necessarily think of it as us and them because it, us is us. <laughs> it, mm -hmm. is, it is all us. And that, that's what I think drives a lot of this work. Yeah. And, and I, I second that, you know, when I think about some of our team meetings and we would start with the community meeting, which is of course out of the sanctuary model, and you go around the room and everyone had a really bad day <laughs> before they got in that room. And it's, and you could be Joel, you could be Crystal, you could be Sandy Bloom, you could be whoever, but we all may have had a bad day and that created community. So that then we could talk about what happened before we got in that room and then push our agenda after we've, you know, it's a trauma-informed model, right? And so after we've gotten to the point where, okay, we all, had a pretty rough moment before we got here, but now we, we can get to this agenda. That was the thing that kept us in a team perspective and a team model and to help us get our work done. And I wanna add one more thing. I, I wanna give you an, an idea of what it looks like working for the Philadelphia East Task Force as a community person. So we have this idea that we wanna get messages out. We're in a room, we're talking about the messages. We've had folks working on different demographics for the messages, you know, older people, young people, parents. So now we have the messages, we've created these brochures. How are we gonna see if they work? 
I'm a black captain in Philadelphia. There were two other black captains who were on the team. And then we decided we're going to go to the black captains rally and see if these messages work. So now we have, we sat in a row, we developed the messages, we have the messages. Now we're at the black captains rally and now we're testing them. Now we can tell you how they work, if they, if they've had an impact. And so for me, seeing it from my team, recognizing that I'm a value because I help with the messages. I told you that the black captains convention is the best way to administer these these uh, brochures and you listened and we were all able to go and we were all able to work as a team. It was a phenomenal experience, you know, having this whole team there working together to see if these messages work. You know, I just, I don't know. I loved it. It's, it was just great. I just love working with this team. They listen. <laughs> and that's all that matters. <laughs> they listen and act. Crystal and Joel, thank you so much for joining us today. And thanks also to our audience. For more tools and inspiration by networks and for networks, visit mark.healthfederation.org. Funding for this podcast comes from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. The views expressed in this episode are our own and not necessarily those of the foundation. For more tools and inspiration by networks and for networks, visit mark.healthfederation.org. Funding for this podcast comes from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. The views expressed in this episode are our own and not necessarily those of the foundation.